Hayek had a, uh, a great little chapter in The Road to Surf from called Why the Worst Get on Top. <laughs> and uh, his basic thesis is uh, that people that have an ideological objective or a fixed objective of an end that they seek to do view it as morally permissible to do unscrupulous things to achieve it because they're so convinced that they are right in whatever they, uh, they are trying to achieve. And Hayek's using this obviously to describe dictatorships and, uh, and tyranny by government actors, but I think you see some of the same mentality playing out and filtering down into fields like journalism. They're so convinced that they are right, and they're so convinced that anyone that's arguing against them is not simply uh, in honest disagreement, they are actually arguing in serving the forces of evil. On this episode of Liberty Curious, I sat down with Phil Magnus, Director of Research and Education at AIER, to discuss censorship, fact-checking, the politicization of academia, and how that affects research, corporations, and American culture. Phil also outlines how academia often produces ideologically driven experts who then take a technocratic approach to the impossible task of designing the perfect world while quashing all ideas that don't align with theirs. If you enjoy this podcast, make sure you subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And also be sure to check out our new YouTube channel here. So uh, what I was thinking is that since you have obviously this background in academia, you've been subject to fact-checking yourself, and you've also done extensive research on fact-checkers. Uh, maybe we can cover all of those topics. What I'm thinking is that the roots of censorship maybe come from academic ideas and then application in academia, and then they've kind of trickled down into broader uh, the broader social system. Do you think that that's true? I think there's certainly an element to that, and I think it comes from two areas in academia. And the first is the ideological shift of academia has moved into almost a, a left-wing monolith in the last 15 to 20 years, really. Uh, academia had always been a little bit left of center, but it's, it's solidified around a single permitted political view. And when you have a situation like that, you have people that are purporting to speak with expertise, uh, and they all have the exact same view, it kind of becomes an echo chamber, and the pressure is there to censor anyone outside of it. Then the second component of it is, is academia uh, has proliferated the number of degrees in fields that really don't have much of an employment market. A lot of these are the humanities and journalism programs. Uh, so in other words, they're, they're graduating uh, thousands upon thousands of people with a bachelor's degree in journalism or a bachelor's degree in English, and there really aren't many jobs for this. Uh, so, so several of the people that have gone into these fields have ended up making work for themselves by getting hired as fact checkers for these entities that Facebook and Twitter and the other social media companies use. Uh, so what you're getting are the products of academia in very weak employment markets, uh, and you end up in a situation where you have like 23 or 24-year-olds with a journalism degree uh, supposedly fact-checking or evaluating uh, high-end economic knowledge, medical knowledge, scientific knowledge that they're completely unqualified to assess. Well, that's that's a pretty good explanation. And I wonder, though, how it got to this point, though. I mean, what what did that process look like? I know there was a lot of people who were getting canceled on campuses for the past two decades yeah. or so, maybe longer than that. So um, does that have something to do with it, too? Well, they've uh, they've adapted the tactics that work on campus. 
you know, this goes back many decades. If you had a speaker come to campus and you didn't like this person's views, uh, they had abandoned the old liberal exchange model of campus where people come together that disagree and debate out ideas. Uh, instead is you have to cancel that speaker and drive them off of campus. Or if the speech proceeds anyway, they, they stage sit-ins in the middle of the lecture hall and shout down the speaker. Uh, these are tactics that were adapted from campus onto social media. So you have the same thing in like the Twitter mobs that hoard around to try to get a, uh, a, a dissenting voice canceled or expelled from Twitter or have uh, their posts removed for misinformation um, under the policies of the social media companies. Yeah. And this happened to you recently on Facebook uh, where you were posting about <laughs> the, the recession, the definition of the recession. Do you want to explain that a little bit? Absolutely. So uh, the conventional textbook definition of a recession uh, going back for decades, and you find this in most undergraduate economics textbooks, is two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth. It's not the only definition of the recession, but it's the classic one. It's the uh, the one you find in the glossary of, uh, of major economics textbooks. And it's a great rule of thumb for understanding business cycle events. It's it's explained almost all uh, recessionary events since World War II to the present uh, with pretty, pretty good accuracy, a pretty strong track record. Uh, so earlier in the summer, we hit two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth. This was politically unpopular at the White House because they did not want to even countenance the idea that we could be going into a recession. So as the numbers were uh, being prepped for release a couple of days before the release, the, the White House starts putting out statements denying this conventional textbook definition of a recession as two consecutive quarters. They explicitly deny it in their press conferences. They say, that's not the definition of the recession uh, that we use, uh, and anyone who uses that definition is wrong. Uh, so I posted on Facebook, as did thousands of other Americans, basically just a screenshot of the White House's own website where they're denying this definition and put a note and said, basically, what gives here? This is a contradiction of, uh, of decades of economic textbook teaching and a very functional uh, rule of thumb definition for a recession. Uh, so thinking, no big deal. I just used the White House's own words, as did thousands of other Americans that reposted this thing. And a few days later, it gets fact-checked. It gets a notice slapped on it on Facebook and says, you have spread misinformation and uh, the Facebook fact checker isn't an economist, isn't an expert. He's a, uh, he's like a, uh, a journalist that uh, simply has strong political opinions. And he uses the White House's attempt to change the language around a recession as its own vindication of its position. So uh, uh, he's using the White House's words to uphold the White House's political line and therefore deem anyone and everyone, including experts that work in the actual field of, uh, of studying business cycle events, economists, and say, you're wrong. Uh, you violated the, uh, the fact checker standards. Uh, Facebook will therefore penalize your post and slap a notice across of it. Yeah, that's so intense. And you had called that Orwellian and so had many other people uh, because it's you're literally presenting the information that is presented by the White House and then you're being fact-checked on behalf of the Absolutely. White House in a sense, right? I mean, these fact-checkers like PolitiFact, you've pointed out that they are in fact uh, not apolitical, but they are very political and they have uh, certain political leanings. So, So what can you tell us about that? Well, uh, we had another example of it that I, I noticed just yesterday. Uh, Kamala Harris had gone on a, a pretty notorious interview on C-SPAN. I think it was uh, right after the hurricane came through Florida. 
And uh, she basically espoused intersectional uh, hurricane relief theory, basically saying uh, that we need to merge racial and social justice into the way that we uh, that FEMA, I guess, distributes funds or something of that nature. And it was a it's really kind of a gaffe moment. I think she misspoke. Uh, it turned out to be a major political embarrassment. So she obviously did not like that message getting around. And then Facebook started fact checking a clip from C-SPAN. Just an unedited clip from C-SPAN of this this uh, gaffe that she made and saying, well, this is out of context and misinformation, basically running political interference for the vice president of the United States. Uh, so this is, is very far from a neutral arbiter of uh, factual determination. These are people that want to put their thumb on the scale and change the political messaging of what is permissible to say. So where does their funding come from? That's the fascinating thing. It's the social media companies themselves contract with these fake fact check entities that work in uh, some semi-journalistic capacities. Some of them are, are, are really uh, not terribly transparent entities, organizations that set themselves up as supposed nonprofits for fact checking. Uh, so there's really shady background. But uh, but someone like Facebook will come in and they'll sign a uh, a contract to recognize some of these uh, nonprofit entities as uh, official approved fact checkers, and it's basically handing over the keys of content to uh, organizations that have absolutely no oversight, uh, are non-transparent, uh, really have no basic uh, background in the expertise of many of the things that they claim to be uh, arbitrating and fact checking. Yeah, and and it's funny too because we can see that it really does lean to one side. It's really the progressive left. You see this now if you post anything that has the word climate in it, you'll be climate change fact checked as well. And I I kind of predicted that that would happen. We saw that all throughout COVID. If you post anything with the word COVID, with the word virus, with the word vaccine, you know, any of those words, they just send off these flags and it's as if there's an automatic fact check that happens. And um, this is some serious consequences as well that extend to uh, real life doctors, you know, no longer being able to practice in some cases, uh, having their Twitter accounts deleted and not being able to have that scientific conversation where they can exchange information and, and try and debate each other. And I, I, I assume this is in academia in other fields as well. Absolutely. Well, I always ask the question, how many times has Anthony Fauci said something that turned out to be false in the media in the last two years? Uh, I mean, this is almost a daily occurrence with this guy. He was First, he was against masks, then he was for masks, then he's against masks, then he wants two masks. Uh, he's changed his threshold for herd immunity dozens of times. He's had con- contradictory information about lockdowns. Uh, this guy is a walking, blunderous gaffe machine, and he's never once been fact-checked in any substantial way that I've been able to determine. So it's clearly tilting to one side. It's clearly placing the finger on the scale to serve a political narrative that is desired by the media. And it gets even worse than that because we find out from some of the uh, Freedom of Information Act obtained emails that we have internal to the White House and and Fauci's office. Um, He is actually going to the media for his talking points, for his cues about scientific studies. He gets a team of his his assistants to round up the news stories for the day. And then he just parrots them back to him, to the the same media, then the media uses 
Fauci pirating their own stories back to them as a basis for fact-checking anything that contradicts it. So it's an all entirely a circular echo chamber that we see over and over again playing out between the government and the media. Wow. It's really just a, a two-way mirror and nothing else can go through that. Exactly. And and so where where do you think that these fact-checking orders are coming? You said from big tech, but is it possible that they're actually big tech is the extension of big government? Is that what's going on there? Well, I think we're, we're starting to see the information of this. So uh, uh, one of the things, uh, one of the major stories I was involved in in the last uh, year is um, I basically oversaw a Freedom of Information Act request to the National Institutes of Health. Uh, myself and uh, and Ethan Yang, our, uh, uh, our co-host for uh, several of uh, AIER's podcasts, we filed a FOIA request of uh, NIH uh, asking them for internal documentation regarding the discussion of the Great Barrington Declaration. And, you know, I, I had a suspicion that something fishy was going on there, but I wanted to at least see from the records a year later uh, if the government even ever seriously considered this proposal. I uh, wanted to see how it played out. Well, what showed up in the emails actually shocked me. Uh, and I remember the day that uh, the, the FOIA package arrived, and I'm reading through this and just uh, in, in disbelief, there was not a discussion of the scientific merits, even if they disagreed with them, of the argument of the Great Barrington Declaration. Rather, as soon as it hit the news cycle, Francis Collins, the director of the NIH, sent an email to Anthony Fauci saying, we need a strategy basically to, quote, take down these fringe epidemiologists. And uh, fringe epidemiologists, really kind of ironic, uh, Collins says, they even have a Nobel Prize winner uh, <laughs> signing with them, uh, who's <laughs> so apparently fringy. a fringe epidemiologist. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, so, so it was a, a directive from the head of the NIH to Anthony Fauci and then all of their subordinates to take down the Great Barrington Declaration scientists. And then over the next several days, we see in Fauci's email exchanges, uh, well, what's he doing? He and his staff are aggregating news stories to argue a pro-lockdown political line and uh, putting them together. And then they're parroting them right back to the Washington Post when it calls to ask about the Great Barrington Declaration. Yeah, it's just outrageous. And, you know, speaking of uh, Nobel Prize winners, Ben Bernanke, did you see that? I did. <laughs> so it's kind of a tangent, but can you explain to our audience what happened there? Well, uh, so Ben Bernanke is uh, one of the co-winners of this year's uh, Nobel Prize, and it was basically for his work on business cycle theory, uh, which is a, it was a really interesting prize because before Bernanke came to the Federal Reserve, he was an academic economist who had worked in economic history, worked on uh, the causes of the Great Depression. Uh, but the, the twist on this prize was uh, uh, Bernanke is much better known today as the central banker during the financial crisis of 2008. Uh, so it was a little bit of an irony there, and uh, uh, I'm not going to get too much into the politics of it. I don't know how to discern what the Nobel Committee does, uh, but I thought it was very interesting that a central banker was brought into a prize uh, for basically uh, discussing business cycle events. It, uh, it seemed, uh, you know, potentially it's invoking uh, two different different functions here, two very different functions between academic work and government work. Yeah. And at the same time, he was the one who was in charge when everything went horribly wrong. It is. Uh, <laughs> you know, one of the arguments is that he may not have uh, followed his own academic work's advice. 
because uh, one of his major critiques uh, from the Federal Reserve during the Great Depression in the late 20s and early 30s is that they had erred in their management of uh, monetary policy. Hmm. And uh, the great question is, did, did uh, Bernanke correct for that error as he had always pledged he would do when he was appointed as chairman of the Federal Reserve? And uh, I think that the verdict's still out on that, that he may have uh, uh, deviated from his own academic advice. And, you know, this represents to me uh, something else, too, is that there's kind of been a reversal of who are the kinds of heroes in society and who are the people who should receive the accolades. You know, the the examples that you're speaking of, the Great Barrington Declaration um, authors as well as Ben Bernanke. And you look at, let's say, uh, Frederick Hayek, who won the Nobel Prize yep. for a completely different kind of, of paper the use of knowledge in society. And so maybe it's just a reflection of how the times have changed. You know, everything is kind of upside Absolutely. down. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I, and I think major prizes, not just the Nobel, which I actually think tends to be one of the more meritocratic prizes, uh, at least they are giving the Nobel still to uh, to people that do have a true uh, scholarly track record. I mean, separate and apart from Bernanke's uh, central banking role, he was an accomplished scholar, is an accomplished scholar. Uh, I think some of the other prizes that uh, we see, like the Pulitzer, uh, have gone completely down the track of politicization. And this has been my major uh, critique of the New York Times' 1619 project. It received a Pulitzer Prize uh, for work that I would say is even substandard by basic journalistic ethics uh, uh, standards. Uh, this is a prize that was given to a piece of journalism that secretly ghost edited it, its content off of its own website to make it more appealing for the Pulitzer Prize application process. Uh, to me, that is a violation of basic ethics, uh, and yet that's exactly what we saw play out there, and uh, the New York Times doesn't care. The Pulitzer board doesn't care. Uh, they rewarded a prize because it hit the political message of the moment. It sounds kind of like the fact-checking and, and Fauci and Absolutely. going to the media, like it's just these circular kind of uh, conversations, and, and people are using basically their own opinions to bump themselves up and and to say that this is presented as truth, and um, right. this is this is pretty dangerous. Um, I'd like to to ask you as well what you think the connection is here between outright propaganda and censorship. Yeah, well, I, I think it's this is an interesting issue because I don't think there's any like grand conspiracy. I don't think there's a uh, a centralized directive coming out of the government. Uh, that says these are the things we must fact check on, and quite the opposite of that. I think the journalism profession very clearly leans to the political left and has for quite some time, and it's moved even more intensely in that direction. So what you have is an employment pool in journalism that basically comes out of a self-reinforcing echo chamber. And what do they do? Well, they, they pick up cues from the political speech of figures on the left that they agree with already. Uh, they agree with the White House. They agree with Anthony Fauci. Uh, therefore, what Fauci must be saying has to be true. And the other side is evil. The other side is wrong. So they go out and then uh, uh, use that existing political bias and the existing political cues to search for reinforcement of their position. And you see this as a theme. Every time you read one of these fact-checking articles, uh, it's written by a journalist who maybe has a background in uh, like a bachelor's degree in poetry. 
uh, but they're writing about medical issues or they're writing about economics or they're writing about climate science, uh, something as well outside of their expertise. So they can't comment on it directly. What they do is they'll find and cherry pick another expert out of academia who will tell them exactly what they want to hear. And they present that cherry-picked idea as the sole voice on the issue, sometimes in ways that reinforce uh, the use of the fact check to critique uh, opponents of that, uh, that voice, including credentialed expert opponents. Do you think that there's um, any kind of ideological roots there that these are the kind of ideas that come from maybe Marxism? Like, where is this coming from, this way of operating? Well, I think it's it's uh, even broader than that. So F.A. Hayek had a uh, a great little chapter in The Road to Serfdom called Why the Worst Get on Top. <laughs> and uh, his basic thesis is uh, that people that have an ideological objective or a fixed objective of an end that they seek to do view it as morally permissible to do unscrupulous things to achieve it because they're so convinced that they are right in whatever they, uh, they are trying to achieve. And Hayek's using this, obviously, to describe dictatorship and uh, and tyranny by government actors. But I think you see some of the same mentality playing out and filtering down into fields like journalism. They're so convinced that they are right, and they're so convinced that anyone that's arguing against them is not simply uh, in honest disagreement. They are actually arguing and serving the forces of evil. They're, uh, uh, they're captive of dark money interests. They're uh, uh, people that are, are, are doing bad things for profit and for motives that we, are, uh, we look down upon. Uh, and because they've convinced themselves of that, it means it's all right to bend the facts a little. It's all right to bend the facts quite a bit. Uh, again, we saw this in the 1619 Project. There's a recent uh, controversy where um, uh, the president of the American Historical Association offered mild criticism of its politicization. And I wrote a, a piece about this for AIER, but it was widely covered in the news. And there was a backlash. The Twitter mob came after him. And the major critique from the Twitter mob was not that he was incorrect. Uh, he had correctly pointed out that there were factual errors in the 1619 Project. But they were furious at him. And I paraphrase uh, several of the arguments. They were furious at him because he had provided ammunition to the other side by saying that the 1619 Project was not factually sound. And that ammunition to the other side was in itself worthy of cancellation. Wow. I, I actually remember seeing that uh, on your Twitter and seeing that article passing by. What was his name again so people can look him up? Yeah, so as James Sweet was the president of the AHA, and he was basically hounded into submission by a cancellation mob. Yeah, and, and this is really detrimental to people as well. It's it's not just detrimental to knowledge and seeking truth, but on a personal basis, you know, I think Absolutely. that what, what ends up happening there is that people are more likely to apologize to the angry mob, uh, which just can make things worse. And then another thing as well is that they self-censor. Absolutely. They're afraid to say what they think. Absolutely. And you see this all over the academy today. There are surveys of, uh, of students. And I'm not even saying students on the right. I'd say any student that is not of a far left perspective is currently under pressure to self-censure. This is everything from the political right, libertarians, classical liberals, to even just moderates and centrists. Uh, James Sweet of the AHA was basically on the moderate left uh, when he wrote this criticism. And yet he's 
basically beaten into submission by the Twitter mob. Uh, but you see this, uh, you know, you ask the question, if even the president of a major academic association uh, can be pushed into silence, what does this mean for an 18 or 19-year-old undergraduate who's sitting in the classroom and being uh, propagandized with uh, just far-left ideological claims coming from the professor and told that they either have to regurgitate this back to the professor on their exams or else they're going to fail the class? Uh, that's the implication there. So they do self-censor. Yes. And actually, I know a personal example of somebody who's 18 or 19 and she's going to university right now. Um, and that's exactly what is happening with her. She's aware that uh, the ideology that's being taught to her is is radical and she doesn't partake in it personally. But she told me that when she writes her papers, she writes them in a way that she will get good grades. And that means that she has to Absolutely. regurgitate it back to the teacher. So what does that look down the line for society? Like, what will it look like in 20 years? <laughs> well, I think uh, first what it tells us is that most of these classes where this is occurring in are uh, basically worthless. I'm sure your friend is paying probably tens of thousands of dollars every year to go to the university and to take these courses. And, and notice that they're, they're normally not courses that are useful to your major. Uh, most students are fleeing these subjects, but they're required to graduate. You have to take so many hours of English, so many hours of history, philosophy, whatever you, uh, you, the university happens to require there. And uh, you have no choice. You can't say, well, I'm not interested in English. Uh, I'd rather spend my $10,000 in tuition studying engineering. The university won't allow you to do that. They say you have to finish the English credit uh, before you can advance to your major and do your engineering credits. Uh, so there's a coerced consumption that's going on in our university model of really junk classes where students are either absorbing the propaganda or... They're doing what your friend does and just having to bite their tongue and work around the system, work within the exam to give the professor what he or she wants to hear in return just to get the grade. And that's not, uh, you know, that's not a demonstration of the purpose of the education system. That's self-defeating. That means that that class is functionally useless. The person is taking that class is not getting anything out of it. They're uh, uh, really just trying to get an easy grade uh, to get past it so they can actually do the courses that they can about. Yeah. And I think that also represents a problem later in society. Like if these people will be our engineers, will be our politicians, will be uh, yeah. our journalists, you know, um, I think that we're going to see that we live in a world that is that is warped, right? And we already are yeah. there. So I can imagine if this continues in this direction unfettered, what what can become of this world? And there's the joke. Uh, if you go to Higher ed press and higher ed discussions, they're always claiming that the universities are becoming corporatized. And I've been studying this issue for 20 years. I've never found a shred of evidence that the corporations have moved in to take over the universities. But rather, what we do see is the opposite direction. It's corporations, private corporations are being universitized. Uh, people that are coming out of higher ed uh, that are basically ideological activists are moving into the corporate space and saying, well, we must make our company socially aware. We must uh, not enlist it towards servicing uh, uh 
the basic production of products that people want, not servicing our customers, but enlist it to uh, all of these side campaigns and crusades on political issues that, in fact, most of the public uh, is just generally apathetic on. They don't really want uh, Microsoft telling them specifically uh, what their pandemic uh, response policy should be. They don't want... Uh, Google or Facebook uh, trying to guide them into uh, uh, environmentally conscious uh, fuel use and consumption patterns. Uh, I don't need Google telling me that I have to have an electric car or that I need to take a, a, a map route on Google Maps that uh, reduces my carbon emissions. Uh, yes. And yet that's what these companies are trying to do right now. And it mostly comes from an absorption of uh, university graduates that are basically ideological activists. And when they arrive at the company, they want to continue that activism through the products that the company is producing. Yeah, you know, this makes so much sense. Um, but I also think about who are they being taught by? And, you know, it's not this generation. They are the ones being indoctrinated. So, of course, this is going to spill out into society. But if you look further back, and I spoke with this about, um, about this with Samuel Gregg, how in the yep. 90s, they started to... Um, to no longer be focused on profit in corporations, they started to change their language. And there were the three Absolutely. P's, people, profit, and planet. And it was no longer just profit. Yeah. Um, and profit, actually, one can argue, is the way uh, to benefit society, you know, if corporations are focused yeah. on profit. And maybe you can get into that. But my point here is that it seems that that has turned into the SDGs. That whole model has just kind of been rebranded. Yeah. What do you think? Yeah, I think that's absolutely <laughs> the case. What you are seeing is companies straying away from producing useful items and useful services to the public uh, and rather trying to take advantage of their own success. So in some ways, uh, many companies are victims of their own success. Uh, they're able to absorb extremely wasteful, extremely inefficient uh, political activism under their own internal bureaucracies uh, because they have in the past been successful at producing products. Uh, and uh, actually, a lot of this, uh, what you see coming out of these companies, it's, it's really window dressing. It's not meaningfully even advancing the issues that they claim to care about. Uh, the term that's come up for this, especially in relation to the environmental stuff, uh, they refer to it as greenwashing. And that is a, um, a company will do like window dressing signaling. It'll, uh, it'll put a new banner on its Twitter account that says we're environmentally conscious or uh, it'll uh, uh, put um, special parking spaces for electric vehicles that are really uh, meaningless in terms of actually helping the planet as they claim to do, but uh, they send a very visible signal to their employees and to others in the company uh, that this that we care about the environment. So, uh, uh, so greenwashing ends up basically being a direct waste of company resources for frivolous window dressing that doesn't even uh, deal with the the issue that they're purporting to to try to solve, yet it gives this uh, this social justice signal uh, that they can broadcast to the public and say, "See, we care too." Yeah, and it's an easy way as well for consumers who are blissfully unaware to just feel good about it by proxy, right? They, Absolutely. I, I got, um, you know, I received a package of cat litter via Amazon, and I opened the on the mm -hmm. box. It writes, "People or paws, not profits." And it's just like, well, 
why? Why why do you not want to make profits? But you do want to make profits, right? I mean, are they actually shooting themselves in the foot or are they just virtue signaling? Yeah. What's going on there? It is almost entirely virtue signaling. You know, economics has long had a concept called conspicuous consumption. This is the idea that you buy a flashy uh, car or jewelry or things that you want to show off uh, to other people that you have. Uh, well, I'd say there's a, a counterpart on the uh, uh company side, I'd refer to as conspicuous production. And it's uh, production not necessarily of goods that they think that they will sell, but it's goods that they think the public wants to see them doing for social responsibility. And that's probably exactly what you saw in the cat litter package. Uh, you know, I see it in the grocery store every time. Uh, you walk by displays where they have a, a big banner saying that this is sustainable paper towels or these are uh, uh, environmentally conscious uh, uh organically grown vegetables or whatever you want to call it. Uh, I'd argue that the, the average consumer probably doesn't care about the label, but they do see that label as a positive virtue signal uh, through conspicuous production that's coming out of companies. Yeah, and this is really unfortunate because what this leads to as well is us no longer being able to talk about the, again, the climate change uh, so-called consensus Right. I mean, we know that the IPCC, you know, I don't want to get too off to the side here, sure, um, sure. but but they are basically a political organization and and they've created that famous uh, hockey hockey stick graph that shows, right. you know, they've kind of cherry picked data and shown that we're in this kind of climate catastrophe that we'll need to do all of these things to um to mitigate, but the reason I bring it up as well, even though it's not on the topic of censorship, but of course it's it's tied into that because you can't really talk about it otherwise, is that there are very real economic consequences to this because they talk about things Absolutely. like circular economy. Uh, they talk about degrowth. They talk about, um, I, I don't know if you saw in Germany, they just put out this little propaganda ad that said, we'll need you to turn your energy down this winter so that we can make it through the winter, right? So right. This, is, this is dangerous for people, right? So Right, right. Well, and here's what you have is there's a leap that's being made between the climate science. Uh, you know, I, I'm not a climatologist. I, uh, I can read some of this literature and I see what, what's been said on it. And uh, I probably would classify myself as sometimes it's called the lukewarmer, someone who thinks that there, there actually is evidence of the planet warming. Uh, I don't think it has uh, the catastrophic effects that are being claimed. It's not uh, the disaster movie of the day after tomorrow with giant waves as splashing into the cities. Uh, but yes, if we accept that the climate is warming, uh, I, I see that as entirely plausible and worth debating in scientific circles. But what they do is they make a leap from that to policy. And none of these climatologists, none of the people that are advocating these things are experts in policy design. Very few of them are experts in economics. Uh, they don't understand the mechanisms of the regulatory tools that they are seeking to uh, impose in the name of uh, addressing a climate uh, issue. And what you get there is a really dangerous situation where people who are ill-equipped for policy design are nonetheless saying, we must plow ahead and anyone who stands in our way is a dissenter that needs to be censored because we don't adopt a carbon tax next year. 
uh, without ever asking what are the, the, the uh, cost benefits of the carbon tax, without ever asking uh, if the carbon tax even achieves what it purports to achieve, uh, without ever asking what are the political coalitions that come up and entrench and distort the purpose of the carbon tax. These are all pertinent issues that we need to ask and work through, and you need economists and policy experts to actually do that. Yet in this, this fact-checking world, those voices are intentionally left off the table because they're the voices of skepticism. Uh, what they'll do is they'll, they'll quote the climatologists and say, the earth is warming, therefore we need uh, radical uh, overhauls of economic policy that that person is not even equipped uh, to speak on competently. So there's the real danger is this merging of the policy world with uh, the supposed scientific expertise. Uh, and we saw it in COVID, we see it in climate science, we see it in numerous other things. And then lo and behold, there's always a media fact checker right there uh, ready to quote their cherry picked expert to say, you must enact this policy or else you're wrong and you deserve censorship. And you know, the, the more pernicious thing here is that this the results of this are things that we've seen in history. When you try to change economic systems, when you try and force an economic change of a system in order to achieve certain ends, like, can you give us some historical examples of how that can go wrong? Yeah, all sorts of things. The classic example is prohibition of alcohol. And what happened in the 1910s and, and 1920s is the, uh, the U.S. government passed a constitutional amendment to allow Congress to prohibit private consumption of alcohol for non-medicinal purposes. And uh, they thought that this was going to solve all sorts of social ills. Uh, the claim was that demon rum had uh, caused the breakup of families. It caused uh, uh, income earners to, uh, uh, to abandon their jobs and, and drift into vagrancy. It caused domestic violence. It caused crime. Any and every social problem you could uh, uh, name was somehow traced to alcohol. Uh, so it gave them a simple solution. And the medical journals actually backed this. They said, if we prohibit alcohol, we will solve vagrancy and, uh, and homelessness, and we will solve crime and uh, domestic abuse and all of these problems that occur. Uh, just get rid of the source with alcohol. Well, what happened in the 1920s? The exact opposite. Uh, the alcohol market is pushed underground. It becomes a black market. And in fact, the bootleggers absolutely love the fact that alcohol is illegal because that allows them to mark up their own product. And they don't have to pay any taxes on it. They don't have to abide by any regulatory regime that the distillers used to have to do. Uh, so, so they are raking in uh, massive amounts of money. Bootlegging explodes into a nationwide problem. And what does it do? It brings crime with it. This is where you get the Al Capone-style mobs in Chicago. This is where you get uh, uh, shootouts between the police and the, uh, uh, the bootlegging gangsters that we see in all of the old classic movies of that era. Uh, there's a burst in crime that's brought about not by uh, uh, alcoholism itself, but by the act of prohibition. So the whole thing backfires. The federal government recognizes this problem's emerging, and they also discover that people are taking medicinal alcohol, which is, uh, it doesn't taste all that great, but it'll do the same purpose of, uh, of getting you drunk, and they're consuming medicinal alcohol for recreational purposes. Oh. The federal government says, uh, well, what are we going to do on that? Well, we can stop them by adding some poison into the medicinal alcohol. Oh, my goodness. But they don't, but they don't tell anybody 
Uh, so it's uh, denaturing the alcohol. Uh, so you have like rubbing alcohol, but they add intentionally, uh, they'll add poison into it. And they'll say, well, this will stop people from drinking it for uh, the wrong purposes and just use it as a disinfectant. <sighs> well, people continue to, to drink it and they don't really get the word out there that the poison has been added. And, uh, you know, there are estimates that probably several thousand people died by ingesting uh, medicinal alcohol that had been poisoned under the government's order in the 1920s uh, through this just haphazard regulation that completely backfired. That's terrible. I did not know it that. It absolutely is. <laughs> so do you think that they're going to start to um, have a kind of bootlegging industry for jerry cans of gasoline? <laughs> right. Well, well there, there's the running joke. I, I mean, what do we do when uh, we're all forced to uh, switch over to electric vehicles, as the state of California and several others have, uh, have said that they're going to mandate in the early 2030s? Uh, does this mean that, uh, you know, does a, a, a separate sector emerge around used cars, including illicitly sold used cars? Do you start gaming it by uh, purchasing out of state if you live in California? Um, all of these things are very real possibilities, and it creates a regulatory nightmare, all because the government, for ideological reasons, has tried to force this policy on us. Yeah, well, it's kind of like things like the bans on plastic that you see. Um, mm -hmm. And I think it was John Tierney from City Journal, he wrote on this, and he basically debunked uh, the fact that plastic was this big polluter. He said it's actually more environmentally friendly than all of these tote bags that you buy that I think you would oh, exactly. need to live two or three lifetimes. You would need to, to use it for like 200 years or 300 years straight or something like that. I would suggest people go read it for the the specific numbers. Um, but the point was, is that these regulations that are being used to mitigate this boogeyman, right? They, yeah. <laughs> they in fact, are doing the opposite. Yeah, they're often very environmentally destructive. Uh, the other one I, I point to, so uh, solar power, uh, solar panels themselves are a very um, in industry-intensive process to create and make, uh, as are uh, certain types of generators, including the ones that they use in, in uh, electric windmills. And even though both of these devices do add to the power grid, they're sources of power, and uh, in some circumstances, they're completely viable. Uh, but to produce them also requires extracting some really nasty metals out of the earth and chemicals out of the earth, uh, and what basically amounts to strip mining and you see in, in both of these industries, uh, like, like extracting rare earth metals. Uh, another one is uh, the, the batteries in electric cars. They, they require all sorts of chemicals in them. Uh, but most of these industries to supply supposedly green technology, what they're really doing is um, ex uh, they're, they're basically exporting the productive process of extracting these metals out of the ground to developing countries that have low environmental regulation. Uh, so you get this really nasty strip mine intensive, pollution intensive operations that are happening in place like, places like China, uh, places in Africa that are part of the developing world uh, to create these luxury power supply, power sources uh, in North America, a very wealthy area of the world. Uh, so it, it, in a way, it's basically taking the pollution problem and shoving it off to another part of the, the globe where they have to deal with it, but we don't have to at home, just so rich people can drive their Teslas and stick a solar panel on their roof. Yeah, you know what, this, this is 
making so much sense. And and there was the same thing when it came to the plastics, right? Like all of the composting Absolutely. and recycling and things like that, that you, you send to these, you know, you send off your, your recycling and your composting. And what ends up happening in some cases is that that actually gets exported to these uh, developing countries and then they burn it. They literally burn it. They don't know what to do with it. They have nowhere to put it. And so you have environmentally unfriendly practices that are happening at the end of this, but the people who are putting the policies in place and the people who are engaging in those activities blissfully unaware, they can all feel good about their actions. Yeah, they, they pat themselves on the back and said, we converted to green energy and green solar and we put this on the roof of our, our building. And uh, therefore, in very conspicuous ways, you should like our company. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just really something else. So I'm actually glad that we kind of went on this tangent because it's really interesting. Yeah, and uh, and yeah, I, I really enjoy it a lot, but it actually can kind of bring me back uh, towards the censorship and the fact-checking regime that we have going on. Um, because I think of a certain virtue signaler in particular, you know, Bill Gates, he talks about what we should do with the climate, what we should do with the viruses, what we should do with everything. Like he's kind of this... He's got these utopian plans and he's not the only one, but he happens, his uh, organization happens to own NewsGuard, which you did a big report right. on. Right. So what is NewsGuard? What does that have to do with fact checking, with censorship and all of that? Yeah, so NewsGuard is one of these uh, self-appointed fact checker entities, and they signed a major contract with Microsoft uh, to integrate it into the Microsoft Edge browser, which fortunately uh, almost nobody uses, but uh, <laughs> nonetheless, that contract is there. Uh, they have major funding from, uh, uh, you know, I, I did some digging into their funding, and, and it's it's really not transparent. They list a few of their major funders. They don't give any disclosures, really, about what they're doing, uh, but it's another one of these firms that goes around, and they sign contracts contracts with uh, big tech and social media companies to be the fact check enforcer. And they publish these ratings of websites. Uh, and if your website fails their rating, you get a, a, a red X on it that integrates into the browser and alerts everyone that your website is naughty. It's a, a purveyor of misinformation. Uh, if, on the other hand, that they approve you on their on their website, they're fact-checked, uh, you get a, a green check mark, and that is supposed to signify that uh, your information is valid. And yeah. uh, I think their aim here is they want to uh, use this as a tool that can manipulate search results, manipulate the way that certain websites appear when you link to them on social media, uh, and it's all tiered toward elevating approved websites and denigrating disapproved websites. Yeah, and one specific example of that was the Great Barrington Declaration you had found, right? Absolutely. Their website. So yeah. what what happened there? Absolutely. So uh, this this involved me personally because I received the email from uh, the fake self-appointed fact checker at NewsGuard uh, basically saying, well, we reviewed uh, the Great Barrington Declaration and articles on your website, and we think you are purveying misinformation uh, about Fauci and the lockdowns and masks and all the issues that uh, uh, the journalistic left cares about. And we're going to uh, subject you to a rating. Uh, so I responded in good faith and uh, and explained, well, a couple things are going on here. First, there's a diversity of opinion that we publish on our website about these issues. Uh, and then the second thing was that they had actually misrepresented the science on several of these issues. So lockdowns came up in one of the email exchanges I had with these people. Uh, they were uh, upset at AIER because we published a story that didn't even claim anything. It linked 
to another study out of Johns Hopkins University that basically showed that lockdowns do not work. Uh, and as a Intellectually robust study done by uh, empirical economists who, uh, who work in the area of testing counterfactuals. And they showed, they aggregated all the evidence together that showed that lockdowns did not work. Um, NewsGuard was furious at us for linking to this study because the uh, study itself critiqued the pro-lockdown side, the epidemiology modelers around Imperial College London and the Neil Ferguson group who are claiming basically since day one of the pandemics that we need to lock down because lockdowns work. Yes. And what NewsGuard does in their, uh, their correspondence with me is they say, well, you're citing the Johns Hopkins study, but here's a study out of Imperial College that proves that their own lockdown models work. And uh, it's deferring to Imperial College to be the judge, jury, and executioner of their own uh, study uh, and fact checks uh, of, of basically suppressing anyone that's critiquing them. And I respond to these guys. I said, okay, well, uh, yeah, you're citing a study from Imperial College that the Johns Hopkins study specifically critiques on page three, four, and five. And you don't really have an answer for that. Well, they're not interested in it because NewsGuard is not a fact checker entity. They're a propaganda entity that cherry picks claims from other experts, other stories uh, to basically support their political point. That's, again, it's the same kind of thing. You have that two-way mirror. Mm -hmm. You have that circular situation going on where it's like, well, this is, this is the evidence that what, my, what I've wrote is evidence that what I've written is correct. So. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and they don't even abide by their own standards on this. So uh, one of the things that Ethan Yang and I did uh, after we, we got into this back and forth with NewsGuard, and it became very clear that they were acting in bad faith, they were pushing a political line, is we took their rating rubric and we applied it to their own website. And they have a 100-point score uh, where you can get like a 100 is a perfect score of a supposedly honest and transparent and factual website. And um, they have all these criteria. And then uh, obviously like anything below a 60 is a failing grade and, and so forth. Uh, so we added up all the points using their own rubric, uh, did a very deep dive into all of the different components, and they scored a 36 out of 100 on their own rubric, according to, uh, to our assessment of it. Uh, so they don't even abide by their own standards that they're imposing on other websites. Uh, they had a failing grade that was much, much lower than other websites that they were dinging as unreliable. Well, I, I'm just going to say a note to our audience here. For anybody who doesn't follow Phil Magnus, follow him on Twitter, uh, follow what he does, read his work at AIER, I suggest highly, um, because you'll see that Phil is a a debunker. Like you, you really do a good job at going in and 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 f extracting the truth, or at least trying to get closer to it. You know, and that I think should be what researchers aim to do, right? But all of these Absolutely. things, these these mechanisms of censorship, uh, of self censorship, um, and of propaganda are getting in the way of good research. So how does that uh, reflect more broadly in the economic context? Well, we see several of the same patterns applying in economic work. 
Uh, and, you know, as, as you mentioned, I, I do quite a bit of debunking, uh, and that is everything from the White House's webpage claiming that uh, two consecutive quarters is not a definition of a recession, even though it's been in economics textbooks for decades. Uh, but I do empirical debunking of claims that are made on economic data. I've done quite a bit of work on, on tax distributions and income distributions and inequality. And well, lo and behold, it turns out that some of the advanced economic work on inequality and its measurement uh, had, it was riddled with statistical errors. It could not be replicated from the, uh, uh, the published material. Uh, so several of my own works uh, and articles are, are corrections to that. Uh, to try to put us on a sounder footing. Uh, so this isn't just a, a media thing. It's not just a hard sciences or a medicine thing. It's not a climate thing. Uh, this is pervasive in the way that uh, we study a broad array of issues in the academic space. And, uh, you know, I, I will say this from experience that uh, uh, going against the grain, being a fact checker, being a scrutinizer, and I mean like a real fact checker, not some media entity that self-appoints to do that, but someone who actually digs into the data and checks sources, it is often not a very friendly world that you are entering into. You're basically painting a target on your back. Uh, if you uh, uh, discover errors in a prominent uh, economist or a prominent historian, prominent uh, medical official's work, uh, that is basically an invitation for them to attack and demonize you. Uh, it doesn't matter how valid your critique is. It doesn't matter if you have airtight evidence that you present, you're going to paint a target on your back. And that is one of the real uh, uh, downsides of the censorship culture we live in is what it means is it's a very unrewarding world to tell the truth. Uh, or to even just try to scrutinize bad claims and subject them to a higher standard of rigor than they're getting in the public space. Uh, but really, I don't know any other way to go about this is, uh, you know, some of us have to develop thick skin and be willing to call out bad work when we see it, be willing to thoroughly document and illustrate with evidence, with data, with facts, uh, every point that we are making on why we find something to be wrong or uh, something to be misguided in its, uh, its claims and lay out the alternative case in clear and transparent ways. Uh, so that's something that I try to do almost every day in my work. Well, that's admirable. And I think that this is something that uh, is, not, is not a new phenomenon either. If we look at historically, you see that anytime yeah. people challenge the consensus, uh, or they they challenge um, information that that could have political repercussions. That's not part of the uh, po uh, the side that that is the most popular, you know, in a given era. Exactly. Um, it's always difficult for them. So I think that it's I think that it's great that you're doing this work, and it's clear in the, in your publications that um, the idea is to figure out the truth and not just to say my hypothesis is correct. Exactly. It's not like an ego-based thing. And I think that many people, unfortunately, in operating from that ego base, like I want to present you something that's that's going to, you know, change history. And and we can refer to the Piketty and Saez case, right? With the income uh, in income inequality. And and this is being cited by Elizabeth Warren and by all types mm -hmm. of senators and politicians that they can use to then push their political agenda. And this is based on things that are wrong um, and that have been you, so, that you're disproving. Um, so, so what I can say, though, on the tax thing is, uh, you know, I'm uh, fundamentally a, uh, an economic historian. 
I've worked on tax data for, for decades. And in the Piketty and Sayas example, uh, so these are these uh, economists, Piketty, Sayas, and Gabriel Zuckman's the third one, uh, all of the far left that want a wealth tax. And they've been constructing uh, study after study after study that, that supposedly claims to prove that inequality is skyrocketing and the rich are not paying their fair share. Uh, and as their academic stars have risen, they've become much sloppier in the way they present their work. Uh, the most recent example being just a few years ago, uh, instead of publishing it in an academic journal, uh, Gabriel Zuckman in particular, one of the members of this trio, uh, decided he was going to take his new data uh, and publish it, do peer review by way of a friendly reporter at the New York Times. Uh, so he handed out uh, pre-publication pre data to the New York Times. They run a big splashy story about how the rich are not paying their fair share in taxes and uh, show all these charts that supposedly prove it. Uh, well, what happened there is I had been working on the same data in the same area. And I had seen an earlier academic version of Zuckman's own work where he had a, uh, a data set attached to it. And I put the two side by side and found that in the months in between him uh, pre-releasing the academic version of it and then handing it over to the New York Times, he had done something that manipulated the shape of his chart to tell the story, the political story he wanted to do. And I thought this was a little bit odd here uh, because I've seen his previous work. I know his current work. And if you put the charts side by side, they do not match. Uh, so I tweeted it out. And within a week, it's a national economic conversation uh, about did this guy manipulate his data? And even to the point that Larry Summers, the former president of Harvard, former pre uh, secretary of the Treasury, uh, reads this and weighs in. And he basically says, well, I've seen the, tr the Twitter criticisms and I've seen the written criticisms of, uh, of your work, Mr. Zuckman, and uh, uh, you're wrong. I agree with them. I think you're manipulating your data is basically what he said. I have made a very close study of the Twitter wars of the last week surrounding the work of Saez and Zuckman. And I have to say, I find myself about 98.5% persuaded by their critics that the data are substantially inaccurate and substantially uh, misleading. Wow. Well, that's great. That's great that you found that. Um, but I think that it points back to what you were saying about Hayek earlier, right? How some people, uh, they believe that they can kind of color outside of the lines because they think that they have a good cause that they're working towards. Yeah. So facts don't matter. It's just the ends that matter. And um, Absolutely. And I think that 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 really connects to censorship and it really connects to fact checking. It's that, you know, this information is harmful for people. Like we can't allow them to, to see it, you know? Um, and it's interesting. I was watching this morning, uh, an old episode of the Simpsons. Okay. Where <laughs> Lisa, she gets invited to this club of, you know, the high IQ club it's called. And so they decide that they're going to figure out like this utopian vision for society, right? And the, and they put all of this idea together, but then the whole village or the town, Springfield, they all turn on each other. They turn into a mob. They end up fighting and the complete opposite happens. And then Stephen Hawking comes in and he's like, Lisa, this is what happens, you know, when you try to kind of centrally plan society. He didn't use those exact words, but that was his point. You see that power corrupts, right? So um, I think that, that that's that's pretty much uh, summing up this this whole situation. It's hard to get to the root of exactly where it comes from because I, I guess, would you agree that it comes from many different uh, seeds? 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, it comes from a, a culture that views itself as expertise-driven. Uh, we have policymakers that want to turn to technocracy. They get all we need to do is figure out what the right levers of policy are uh, to address every problem that we encounter, and just pull those levers at the right time, have the right people at the wheel of the ship, and it'll all go perfectly. What well, turns out that uh, the political constraints on almost anything you try to do in the public space are um, uh, so severe that they often undermine the ability to execute on even the most perfectly thought out and designed plan. Uh, the other thing is that the people that imagine themselves to be designing uh, policies for implementation often overstate and overestimate their own ability to do so. Uh, so they imagine they can design a perfect world, but they're always missing something. They're always missing large parts of the picture. Uh, the epidemiology models were a classic example of this uh, because they, uh, they had perfectly uh, figured out how to model the, the spread of a disease and here are the intervention points when we stop COVID-19 and it'll go away if we just do X, Y, and Z at the right moments. What well, turns out that the epidemiology model they were using had uh, miscalculated on the way that this disease uh, spread in nursing homes. They didn't even have a way to account for that. Uh, they had overestimated the effectiveness of certain policies, underestimated the effectiveness of others. Uh, their numbers were wrong. And as a result, you get a model that projects something far askew from reality. And when you get counterfactual examples in reality, they don't match up to what the model is saying should have happened. So the solution to that, would you say, is local knowledge? I'd say local knowledge and then a deep, deep skepticism about grand schemes and plans to fix problems implemented from the top down. Uh, you know, the policy world in general that we live in is not the ideal where the scientific administrator clicks his fingers and, uh, and stuff happens. The policy world we live in is subject to interest groups. It's corrupt. It is full of incompetence. It is full of self-serving bureaucrats like Anthony Fauci, who are more interested in increasing their power than actually serving the science that they claim to be. Uh, recognition of that basic reality, that non-ideal reality, puts substantial constraints on what you imagine you can do in an ideal world that simply doesn't exist. Well, Phil, uh, this has been a wonderful conversation, and I thank our, our listeners and our audience here. Uh, please leave your comments below. Um, before you before you leave, Phil, is there any any last words that you'd like to add on censorship and on propaganda? Yeah. So read anything that you see coming out of the media with a scrutinizing eye, and always ask, what are the sources? What are the data? Uh, what does the evidence say behind this? Not uh, that a media figure is quoting someone who claims to be an expert out of Harvard and depending on their expertise to prove it, say, show me the data, because oftentimes the data is at odds with what the experts that they've cherry-picked have claimed. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Phil, and hope to have you on Liberty Curious again soon. All right. <clears throat> Ladies and gentlemen, I must apologize. This man does not speak for the Council of Alphas. We hold you sub-omeguloids in the highest regard. Where are we going to get to my broccoli juice program? Quit butting in, please. Your IQ is a mere 155, while mine is a muscular 170. I am smart. Much smarter than you. Hibbert! You should all do what I say. My IQ is 199 for crying out loud. <clears throat> 198, 197. Big deal. My IQ is 280. <gasps> Demon The world's smartest man! What are you doing here? I wanted to see your utopia. 
but now I see it as more of a fruit totia. <laughs> I'm sure what Dr. Hawking means is... Silence. I don't need anyone to talk for me, except this voice box. You have clearly been corrupted by power. For shame. Larry Flint is right! You guys stink! I don't know which is a bigger disappointment. My failure to formulate a unified field theory, or you. I don't like your tone. If you are looking for trouble, you found it. Yeah, just try me, you. Oh! Doors are opening! Come on, you idiots! We're taking back this town! Yeah, let's make litter out of these literati! That's too clever, you're one of them! Time for this hog to fly. Wrong button. Lisa, thank God you're okay. Did you have fun with your robot, buddy? Dad! Oh, Dr. Hawking. We had such a beautiful dream. What went wrong? Don't feel bad, Lisa. Sometimes the smartest of us can be the most childish. Even you? No. Not me. Never. I guess everyone has a different vision for the perfect world. Wow, Mom. That's very profound. Hey, you read that off my screen. Who's up for some beers? I am. That's the smartest thing I've heard all day. 